welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Your Majesty, you had a vision. You saw a large statue. This statue was very bright. It stood in front of you, and it looked terrifying. The head of this statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were made of silver. Its stomach and hips were made of bronze. Its legs were made of iron. Its feet were made partly of iron and partly of clay. This is the dream. Now we'll tell you its meaning. Your Majesty, you are the greatest king. The God of heaven has given you a kingdom. He has given you power, strength, and honor. He has given you control over people, wild animals, and birds, wherever they live. He has made you ruler of them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom, inferior to yours, will rise to power after you. Then there will be a third kingdom, a kingdom of bronze that will rule the whole world. There will also be a fourth kingdom. It will be as strong as iron. As iron crushes things, this fourth kingdom will smash and crush all the other kingdoms. Daniel chapter 2 verses 31 through 34 and 36 through 43. God's Word Translation. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R. D. Fierro, author, founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time etymologist. He's the one who looks up the meanings of various words that we come across when we're preparing the shows. And anyone who's heard many of the Anchored by Truth episodes knows we do come across some very odd names and words. I'm still getting over Ixtlilxochitl. Yes, that gent. He was an Aztec historian who wrote that the world lasted for 1,716 years before it was destroyed by a flood. We mentioned Ixtlilxochitl in one of our discussions on Noah because the figure that he came up with for the date of the world-destroying flood is only about 50 years off from the date that is derived by studying the genealogies presented in Genesis chapter 5. Hence, of course, that's a pretty remarkable fact that a historian on the other side of the world from the nation of Israel with little or probably no access to the book of Genesis would have come up with a date that was so similar to a world-destroying flood as that that's contained in the book of Genesis. Anyway, that's one of the things that makes Ixlil Shoshitol notable for those of us who study the Bible and want to determine whether the Bible is historically reliable, which of course we believe that it is. Anyway, Today on Anchored by Truth, we're focusing on Daniel, not Noah. Today, you want to talk about the actual content of one of Daniel's major prophecies. 
his prophecy concerning the succession of coming world empires. Is that right? Yes. In our last episode, we took a look at the times and places in which Daniel lived. We saw that Daniel had been born in Israel, but as a young boy, probably as a teenager, he was taken as part of a group of captives to Babylon, and he spent the rest of a very long life outside of Israel, living in one of the cities that belonged either to the Babylonian or to the Persian empires. We also saw that through God's providence, Daniel became a senior court official, more or less a high-level bureaucrat, in both the Babylonian and the Persian courts. Daniel became a senior official in both the Babylonian and Persian courts because he lived long enough to see the Babylonian Empire fall to a confederation of the Medes and Persians. But before we get too far along in our discussion of how Daniel lived long enough to see some of his own prophecies fulfilled, Let's listen to another life lesson with a laugh about one of the most famous and colorful scenes from the Bible and the source for the saying, Handwriting on the Wall. Hi, folks. R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books here today with that fellow who has loads of flash and dash and creates a smash when he arrives at a bash. Uh... R.D., I've never smashed anyone. But speaking of flash... Why are there blue and purple lights flashing everywhere? Particle beams aligning. And why is there a new front wall in the recording room? Hollow matrix initiating. And why is there fog now swirling around the recording room? And why are those things that look like guns aiming at me? Yikes, J-Flash. You sure got your whiny motor burning and churning this morning. You haven't even given me the chance to tell the folks that we're continuing our series on Daniel and the King of Babylon. Anyway... Hollow projectors activating. Wait, why are those gun things starting to glow? J-Flash, mislocated by 10 centimeters east. Danger. Hey, my name's not... I wouldn't worry about your name right now, J-Flash. You're standing in front of one of the particle laser projectors. I'm what? Take a step to your right. Step to the right. Step to the right. Step, 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 step. Now! <laughs> what just happened? And what in the... Power Matrix Online. Projectors realigning. Activating Belshazzar's protocol. RD, look, look. No way. Is that... That's a man's hand. And it's writing on the new wall. It's writing on the wall. Check it out. Wow. Good catch, J-Flash. Can't put anything by you. Of course it's a man's hand. Today we're going to talk about the famous handwriting on the wall incident from the life of Daniel. The book of Daniel, chapter 5, relates how Belshazzar, the king, was giving a great feast for his nobles. Belshazzar had just ordered that the wine be served in the holy vessels the Babylonians had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. When he did so, a disembodied man's hand appeared and wrote on the wall. So CJ Flash, with the help of a little new technology and a couple of holographic projectors, B-Wright is just recreating the scene. We thought it would add a little vitality to today's recording. Yeah, that's not what I would call it. Anyway, since that's what we're talking about, what did the hand write? Well, you can read it. It's right there in front of you, J-Flash. I don't read... There was a Sanskrit? I don't read Sanskrit. And my name's not... Aramaic, J-Flash. Scholars generally believe that the hand wrote in Aramaic 
Part of the reason Belshazzar could not read the writing and had to call for Daniel to interpret it is that ancient Aramaic was written without vowels or spaces between words. So to Belshazzar, the writing on the wall was probably just a string of consonants. But someone at the banquet remembered that Daniel had served Belshazzar's grandfather and knew how to interpret mysteries. So they sent for him to come and give the interpretation. So Daniel read the words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Peres. And I still have no idea what the writing said. Eh, neither did Belshazzar. So Daniel had to explain that to him as well. Be right? Daniel explained to Belshazzar that the words meant that he, the king, had been weighed in the balance and found wanting, and that his kingdom would be given to the Medes and the Persians, and history tells us that is exactly what happened. It's a tragic tale, but it gives us an important lesson. Belshazzar exhibited a flagrant disregard for the Lord's holiness when he used the temple's sacred vessels as party glasses. It's never a good idea to treat the Lord's commands lightly. Don't take a stand against the Lord's commands, or you may be banned from the future you planned. Exactamundo, J-Flame. That's not my name. And what happened to J-Flash? I was kind of digging that. I believe R.D. is referring to the fact that you did not step far enough to the right, J-Flame. Your shirt appears to be smoking. Huh, what? What? Fire suppression protocols initiated. Hmm. Well, maybe I should have said step and a half. Oh, well, it's almost time for lunch. Whose turn is it to buy? Who do you think? Not sure. Wait, is the hand turning? Be right, are you doing that? Not me, R.D. Not me, R.D. Danger, danger. Is that thing pointing at me? Danger, I'm danger. sure I bought last time. Looks like you've been weighed too, R.D. And someone has decided your wallet is too heavy. And we'll pick up a new shirt while we're out. Well, that's it from Smoking Jay. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Sure, still Jerry. Sure. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea Hollow crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com. Where we're not famous, but our boss is. Okay. Obviously, that's a lesson that's full of very descriptive visuals. But even those visuals must pale in comparison to what it must have been like to have really been in the room when that hand appeared. True that. That's one of the things about Scripture that we often forget in these days and times when we are so far removed, at least from a chronological sense, from when the Scriptures were actually written. The handwriting on the wall story is so famous that in our culture and in our language, it's become a proverb for us for something that is obvious. But for the Babylonian nobles who were actually in the room when that giant hand appeared and started writing on the wall, it must have been terrifying. At that point in their party, they had been drinking fairly heavily for a fairly long period of time. So I imagine many of them were in a drunken stupor. But when you see a giant man's hand appear in the room right in front of your eyes and see it start writing on the wall, I think it might have roused many of them even from their drunken stupor. But that's something that we forget. The Bible records real history. So even the most famous Bible stories, like the handwriting on the wall, Those stories happen to real people, in real places, people who are just like us. 
I mean, those people gathered in rooms to celebrate something or to get together and have discussions about the events of the day or whatever. But they gathered in real rooms and they ate real food and sometimes they ate too much, just like us. They had regular lives and even though when and where they lived can seem very exotic or antiquated to us, they were real people who could be inspired or terrified by the events that would become part of the biblical record of Scripture that has been passed down to us. So sometimes I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that the events in the Bible happen to real people. And so when the Bible is describing it, sometimes the mere sort of plain descriptions that it gives us doesn't really always impart to us what it must have been like to actually have been in the room when that hand appeared. And, interestingly enough, the handwriting on the wall incident we just heard about happened on the cusp of the fulfillment of one of Daniel's first recorded prophecies the prophecy that we heard about in our opening scripture. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that the Babylonian Empire would be replaced by another empire that wouldn't have the splendor of the Babylonians. And, just as Daniel had prophesied, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the combined force of the Medes and the Persians. The handwriting on the wall incident occurred just before their armies entered the city in 539 B.C. And in subsequent chapters, Daniel added even more details regarding the coming empires. For instance, in chapter 8, Daniel sees that the second empire as being represented by a ram with two horns, one of which is larger than the other. And he sees the third empire as being represented by a male goat with a large single horn between its eyes. The male goat conquers the ram, but in the end the male goat had its single horn broken off, and the single horn was then replaced by four smaller horns. You say this prophecy, which sounds strange to modern ears, was fulfilled exactly as Daniel foresaw. Can you explain that? I'd be glad to, because this is the kind of prophetic detail that is abundant in the Bible, and it's completely unique within the world's literature. No other book in all of history, no other book that's existing in the world contains the prophecies with the same degree of specificity that is contained in the Bible. Now, Daniel gave the prophecy that we've been referring to here around the year 550 B.C. We know this because Daniel himself dates this prophecy for us. He said he received this prophecy in the third year of Belshazzar, who was the last ruler of Babylon before it was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. Now, historians generally agree that Belshazzar was the co-regent with his father, Nabonidus, for a period of time. Nabonidus might have been technically called the last king of Babylon, but Belshazzar and his father were sort of co-regents because Belshazzar controlled the city of Babylon, while Nabonidus spent a lot of his time outside of Babylon in Arabia in a city that was called Tema. Well, Nabonidus became the king in 556 B.C., Now, historians aren't sure if Belshazzar immediately became the co-regent, but most think that he did become the co-regent and had that role within a relatively few years after his father's assumption of the throne. So that would have made the third year of Belshazzar somewhere around the year 550 B.C. So this means Daniel gave the prophecy of the first empire, Babylon, falling to the second empire, Medo-Persia, a minimum of 10 or so years before it actually happened. But what about the second empire being represented by a ram with two horns, one of which was larger than the other? 
Well, the Babylonians didn't just fall to either the Persians or the Medes. They fell to a confederation of the two. So the two horns represent the two parts of the confederation. Now they did this, the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon while they were being led by a general named Cyrus, who was the son of Cambyses, who was a Persian, and he was the son of Mandane, who was the daughter of the king of the Medes. So Cyrus, as the commanding general who conquered Babylon, was a perfect representative for both sides of the confederation of the Medes and the Persians. He had a Persian father and a Median mother. Now, it's generally agreed by historians that over time, the Persian side of the alliance generally became the stronger of the two sides and eventually became dominant. And that's the reference to one horn being larger than the other. People who read the Bible know that horns are frequently used in the Bible as symbols of power. Now, in chapter 8 of Daniel that we're talking about, the Bible also says that the ram, the Medo-Persians, charged west, north, and south. It doesn't say anything about the ram charging east. Well, that description is consistent with how the Persians expanded their empire. As a matter of fact, the Persians ultimately tried to push so far to the west that eventually they even tried to conquer Greece. And of course, there have been a lot of movies made, both in the early days of movie making as well as recently. There have been a lot of movies made about those encounters between the Greeks and the Persians And the names of some of the battles of the places they fought have become legendary. You know, names of places like Marathon or Thermopylae or Salamis. So the confrontation between the Greeks and the Persians can be directly traced to the fact that the Persians, the ram as represented in scripture, were charging to the west. So that makes perfect sense with the other parts of the prophecy in chapter 8, doesn't it? I mean, the scripture there says the goat, the nation of Greece was extremely angry with the ram. That's consistent with what we know from history, because after the Persians repeated attempts to invade Greece, the Greeks finally pushed back under Alexander the Great. So what does history tell us about Alexander the Great's career that is consistent with Daniel's prophecy? Well, history actually provides us with some striking confirmations that Daniel's prophecies in chapter 8 were fulfilled in minute detail. Such as... Well, let's start by remembering that Daniel is giving this prophecy in the vicinity of 550 B.C. Alexander wasn't even born until 356 B.C., or almost 200 years after Daniel is giving this prophecy. So this prophecy is being given two centuries before Alexander's birth. Next, let's remember that Alexander was one of the most successful military leaders throughout history. He's one of the very few commanders in all of world history who never lost a battle. Alexander was so successful as a military genius that he conquered essentially all of the territory between Greece and what is today modern-day India in a space of just about a decade. And that included conquering Egypt and other significant parts of northern Africa. So Alexander, from a military standpoint, was just a remarkable figure. But Alexander's empire actually essentially ended at his death at the age of 32. Now, Alexander had two sons, but he died so young that his two sons were very young. And his two sons were so young that they were unable to play any meaningful role in succeeding him. Of course, when a leader dies like Alexander, who's controlling a vast empire, and he does not have an obvious successor, Naturally, there's going to be a power struggle. Well, it's generally agreed by historians that both of Alexander's sons, one of whom had been born after Alexander died, 
both of his sons were murdered during that extended power struggle. Now, ultimately, after a lengthy period of fighting, four of Alexander's commanders, Seleucus, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Cassander, divided up the empire. So just as Daniel prophesied, that single large horn that had represented Alexander was replaced by four smaller ones. And none of Alexander's successors, none of the commanders, the generals who succeeded him, ever controlled an empire nearly as large as the one that Alexander had controlled while he was alive. That's pretty amazing, but all that does raise a number of other questions. First, how can we be sure that the events of history do represent the fulfillment of this prophecy? And second, why does the Bible so often give its prophecies in terms that are frankly hard to understand? I think some people might find all this talk about visions of statues and rams and goats a little confusing. Well, the first question is actually pretty easy to answer in this case, because later on in chapter 8, later on from the part that we've been talking about, God actually sent an angel to Daniel, in this case the angel Gabriel, to explain to Daniel exactly what the vision of the ram and goat means. Starting in verse 20 of chapter 8, Gabriel tells Daniel that, and I'm quoting now, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kingdoms of Media and Persia. The hairy male goat is the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is its first king. The horn broke off, and four horns replaced it. Four kingdoms will come out of that nation, but they won't be as strong as the first king was. End quote. So in this case, we don't have to have any doubts about the meaning of the symbols of the ram and the goat because God gave us a very clear explanation for what they meant. Through the angel Gabriel, God told Daniel that the ram was to symbolize the kingdoms of Media and Persia and the goat was to symbolize the kingdom of Greek and a coming powerful king. And we've already talked about the fact that that coming powerful king was Alexander the Great. And to Daniel's ears, that explanation would have been remarkable, wouldn't it? Again, Daniel is hearing about this from Gabriel in 550 B.C. Greece didn't even become more or less a unified nation until 338 B.C. under Alexander's father Philip of Macedon. At the time Gabriel is talking to Daniel, Greece is just a collection of warring city-states. The notion that that collection of fractured minor powers could ever have become a nation that would dominate Babylon and Persia would have been ridiculous if Daniel hadn't known that it was God speaking through Gabriel. Precisely. Now, the second question that you asked is harder. In fact, it's impossible to answer. It's a very tricky question to answer why God does anything. And in fact, no human being can ever comprehensively understand why God does anything unless God condescends to explain it to us. And he does that sometimes, but I don't think he does it as often as maybe a lot of us would prefer. So even though we may not be able to explain precisely why God uses symbols, I think that we can make, as one theologian used to put it, some sanctified speculation about why God does so often use symbols when he's communicating with his people, especially when it comes to prophecy. But you know, in many ways, symbols communicate better than words do. Symbols, uh, especially visually stimulating symbols like charging rams or goats with one horn or heads of gold, Symbols like that tend to be more easily remembered by people than if there's just sort of a wooden description of something that's going on. Symbols tend to have an impact on our consciousness that's even more powerful than just plain verbal descriptions. 
Now, of course, that impact on our consciousness, that can be harnessed for good or evil. I mean, if you look at what's available in movies or on TV or on the Internet, it's easy to see that the visual impact of pictures and of words can be used for either good or evil. Remember the old Chinese proverb that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, that's very true. So when God uses visual symbols to communicate to us, he's doing so in a way that gives us things that are easy to remember, but also that will impact the way we will absorb the message that he's given us. So I think that one of the reasons that God so often used symbols when he was communicating his message, especially about prophecy, was because he was trying to communicate with us in a way that he knew we would be able to absorb the information most clearly. God is not a God of confusion, and he's not a God who is trying to hide his message. But it is true that when God uses symbols, that he is communicating with people, but he is doing so in a way that does require us to use our own individual effort to apply to understand what it is that he is trying to communicate to us. That we do have to apply our own individual intellect and effort in order to study the symbols, to study their meanings, And by doing so, we actually get more from it than if he had just given us, as I said, a plain, wooden, literal description. And I think that's a pretty important point. The starting point for everyone who treats the Bible seriously is obviously reading it on a consistent basis, no matter what approach you use. But it's also important to take some time to investigate resources that help develop an understanding about the biblical times, places, and people. It helps to study a little history about Israel and the various other nations that had such an impact upon them, because without doing that, we can miss some details that are not only important, but fascinating. And in the Internet age, it's pretty easy to do a search on when did Cyrus conquer Babylon, or when did Alexander invade Persia, and get a mountain of helpful information. I think that's a very good point, but I think it does have to come with a caution. There's a lot of good information out there, but there's also a lot of misleading information. So you need to know your sources. I mean, there will be some websites that will obviously be critical of the Bible. And that's okay, insofar as people understand that there are still plenty of things, there are still plenty of topics and subjects in the Bible about which we can have legitimate discussions and that merit further investigation. But it's also very important to ensure that where there are issues that aren't settled or that are open to legitimate discussion, that you look at both sides of a question. And I think that's one of the reasons that's really a good idea for people who want to learn the Bible, who want to study the Bible, as we hope all of the listeners on Anchored by Truth do, that it's really important for them to have mature Christians that they can turn to for help. People like their pastors or elders in their church or uh, maybe people in their family. But it's it's really good idea for especially younger believers and less mature Christians to have older mature Christians that they can turn to to help guide them. And of course, it's super, super important for Christian parents to be very involved in helping their children learn how to correctly study and apply the Bible to their lives. Sounds like a perfect time to close with prayer. Since godly fathers and mothers are so important to families in our communities, how about if today we close with a prayer for mothers? And next week, in recognition of Father's Day, we'll close with a prayer for fathers. A prayer for mothers. Father, you created all life and people out of your unlimited love. Lord, I pray that you would bless and protect my mother. 
hold her close to you, and provide for all her needs. I pray that you would give her health and protection and surround her with friends and companions. I pray that she would be a blessing to them and they to her. I pray that you would provide for her financial and material needs, especially during uncertain times. Your word tells us to honor our father and mother, for in doing so we not only honor them, we also honor you and bring blessings into our own lives. My desire is to be found faithful in whatever ways you call, so help me to pay special attention in those areas where your word is so clear. Grant me wisdom so that I may plan wisely for my mother. Help me to know how to bring joy into her life. Help me to slow down when necessary to be with her and talk to her, reminding me that someday I will hope that others will do the same for me. Bless my mother by giving her the blessed touch of your nearness and grant that she may have a deeper relationship with Christ, for your Son is her Lord and mine. In Christ's name I pray and give thanks. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. Just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not famous, but our boss is.